0: Good morning, my name is Aubrey, Aubrey Spears. I'm the pastor here and it's great to be with you today. We've just heard Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. And to be honest, it's pretty hard to believe. I mean, how do we really know this is true? The great southern writer Flannery O'Connor once wrote, It's always been hard to believe, but even more so in the world we live in now. There are some of us who have to pay for our faith every step of the way. 500 years ago, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God here in the West. But now for so many people, unbelief is inescapable and belief, it feels impossible in the 16th century atheism was virtually inconceivable there was no way they could have imagined a Friedrich Nietzsche or a Christopher Hitchens there were enormous obstacles to unbelief but now the basic assumptions we carry about this universe erect enormous obstacles to belief so in a relatively short period of time 500 years, just a blip on the scale. We've gone from a world where belief in God was a default assumption to a world in which belief in God is virtually impossible for many people. And that's just the general belief in God. Not saying that in the late medieval ages they all believed the same thing. I'm talking about just the general notion That there is a God. But what we're doing here this morning. What we're dealing with. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's even more difficult to believe. Dead people don't rise. You know that. I know that. It's a universal human experience. Dead people stay dead. The early Christians. They knew that too. It's right there in our gospel reading. If, if you have a Bible, look at Mark chapter 16, verse 1. We find these three women who had witnessed Jesus' brutal execution. And two of them had seen his burial. And what are they doing? They're carrying spices to the tomb. Why? Why are they carrying these spices? Well, in their culture, this was a twofold act of service. First of all... It was an act of service to the dead person, a way of honoring them, anointing the dead person, a way of giving reverence to the profound fact of life and death. It's also an act of service to the survivors because they use these tombs with the whole family. So throughout the year, other bodies would be brought into this tomb. So by anointing it with these spices, you're serving the living by dealing with the smell of decomposition so these women they had watched Jesus die on the cross they come to attend to a tortured corpse and that's what they expect to find in the tomb they had no idea that Jesus's resurrection was even thinkable Like I said, dead people stay dead. It's a universal human experience. With all of our sophistication, we should not be so arrogant to think that primitive people don't know that fact. Perhaps they know it better than we do. It's a mistake to think that it was easy for the first Christians to believe in the resurrection. It's a mistake that people make who live in an age that they have arrogantly dubbed enlightenment. But the Bible doesn't hide the fact that this was difficult, very difficult. None of the contemporary beliefs in Jesus' day regarded life after death. None of them bear any resemblance to the Christian claim of Jesus' resurrection. They didn't, they they, they the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, what happened to him, this contradicted the beliefs. Of the ancient Near East. As much as it contradicts our beliefs. Science has not changed one iota. Of what people know about the finality of death. That's why when you read the gospel of Mark. And you hear Jesus telling his disciples over and over again. That he would suffer and be killed and rise again. This is why they didn't understand him. This is why they thought when he said that, he was talking in a parable just like so frequently he did. Because they know what you and I know. Dead people don't rise from the dead. It's a fact of universal knowledge. These women, just like the disciples, despite their incredible devotion to Jesus, they had no expectation of his resurrection they are caught completely off guard. They aren't going to, to the tomb with faith in the one who is alive. They are going with ointments for one who is dead. And then there's the end of the resurrection story in Mark, Mark's gospel. Verse 8. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Running away. Trembling. Silence. And fear. Fear. These are the words of panic. They're in utter panic. Just like the disciples fled the cross. The women flee the empty tomb. God surprised everybody. On that first Easter day. The Bible never tries to hide it. Believing doesn't come easy. It didn't come easy for them. And it doesn't come easy for many of us. But let me ask you a question. What if it is true? And who wouldn't want it to be true? The Bible is the story of how the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection. Our deepest longings. The stuff of myths. The stuff of our greatest stories. True love, eternal life, justice, acceptance, beauty. These aren't just fantasy. They're the primal collective human awareness of the way things were made to be. And these innate longings that fill the stories of all cultures, even country music. These innate longings, they have been fulfilled. But they were fulfilled in a way nobody expected. In a way nobody saw coming. Nobody was poised waiting on the resurrection. It shocked them so much. They ran in terror. Now in our day, we're not so demonstrative. Maybe our terror is existential, but it's the same. All of these deep desires that fill our fairy tales, that fill our myths, they've been fulfilled in and through Jesus' death. And resurrection. This is how the one and only Creator has launched his plan to fix the world in and through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection. The Creator has grasped the world in a new way to sort it out, to fill it up with his glory and justice and beauty, just like he always promised he would do. The ancient sickness that's crippled this whole world and humans with it. It has been cured. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, life has come to life. It's pouring out like a mighty river into the world. All this has happened in and through Jesus. And one day, it will happen completely and utterly To all of creation. And we humans. Every single one of us. Whoever we are. We can be caught up in that transformation. Here and now. This is the Christian view of reality. This is the Christian view. Of the the way things really are. And here's my point. What an incredible story. The British atheist Julian Barnes once wrote The Christian religion didn't last so long merely because everyone believed it, it lasted also because it was beautiful. A great novel. He gets it right on the money. The story tells the greatest, the Bible tells the greatest story that's ever been told. And so I ask you once again, what if it is true? And who wouldn't want it to be true? Show me a better story and I'll convert. Tolkien said, I'm a Christian because the Bible story is the best story I've ever read. And after all, wouldn't you expect that to be the case? If the God who paints a million sunsets tells a story, wouldn't it be the best? And so I ask you, what if it is true? And don't you want it to be true? Healing, justice, beauty, a God who loves and forgives? This world not incinerated, but healed? Don't you want it to be true? Isn't that attractive? But being attracted by its beauty, how does that help us with our doubts? Where I started this morning, it's hard to believe. What what does the attraction have to do with the doubts? We'll look at it this way. Some people think that becoming a Christian happens after you wrestle with all the various doubts you have. And when you overcome them, you've cleared the way for faith. Now that's possible. Perhaps somebody somewhere has come to faith that way. I've never seen that happen. I've never seen it play out that way. But surely somewhere, there's somebody who did. Most people that I know feel deeply attracted to the gospel. To the story the Bible tells. Despite their doubts. On the one hand, their doubts are real. And they hold them back from faith. On the other hand, the pull, the attraction of the gospel draws them toward faith. And in the end, they decide to put their trust in God and in Jesus Christ despite their doubts. And so they come to faith in two minds. A mind of faith and a mind of doubt. And they hope that their doubts and difficulties will be sorted out as they grow in the faith. We all know people who, well, many of us know people who've come to faith that way and the doubts weren't dealt with and they fell back away. But most people I know, this is the way they come. And they hope that their doubts will be outgrown. Here's a way to think about it. I I got this from somebody else, but I find it so very helpful. Suppose you're at a party and you meet someone. And you feel drawn to them. So you start spending time with them. And as the days and the weeks and the months go by, you realize you're falling in love. But you hold back. You resist. You don't let the relationship go any further because you don't really know them. After all, there might be a really dark side to their character you haven't discovered yet. Can you really trust them? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you think, how can this person really love me? Wait till they discover who I am. What can they possibly see in me? So you're profoundly attracted to the person, but you have doubts. Now, what do you do in that situation? Well, you've got two options. You can become a prisoner of your doubts, your hesitations, or you can take a risk. You can say, I'll give it a try. I'm going to hope my doubts and anxieties will be resolved as we go along. This is the way most people come to faith. They're aware of the enormous attraction of the gospel, they're deeply moved by the thought of a God making all things new through his own death and resurrection. By the thought of Jesus Christ, this God, dying for their sins. By the promises of forgiveness and justice and beauty and newness of life. Let me give you an example of what I mean by the beauty. Let me give you two examples in Mark's account of the resurrection. Two examples of how alluring, how seductive. Christianity is. First of all, when the angel spoke to the three women on that first Easter morning, something he said is an elegant example of one of these beautiful, attractive aspects of Christianity. It's something that has drawn untold numbers of people into the faith. It's in verse 7. Mark 16, verse 7. The angel, he's talking to the three women. We heard this read earlier. Listen to it again. Go and tell. His disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, if you've been reading the Bible like a novel, which is the way you should read it, front to back, one huge, sprawling, and capacious narrative, you know who the disciples are. You know who they are? They're a bunch of jerks. They deserted him. In his most needy, vulnerable, painful, marginalized, suffering moment. And one of them was a traitor. And Peter repeatedly, emphatically, publicly, not only denied Jesus, but cursed him. Blasting. And here we see. These jerks. What do you call the people in your life who have betrayed you? Could I say it? (laughs) (laughs) They're not written off. (laughs) Just like Jesus had said way back in chapter 3, verse 28. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, quote, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Does he really mean it? How many of you on your wedding day would look and say, I will forgive every sin, everyone. You cannot dream of a sin. I will not forgive you of. And then guess what? Time comes and he makes good on that promise. I mean, it's one thing to say it, but after you've been tortured and executed to actually do it. Jesus kept his word. Don't you want this to be true? Don't you want there to be a God like that? Don't you want, you, don't you want there to be a crea- creator like that? Peter, this wayward disciple, after his catastrophic failure, his ugly arrogance, his prideful boasting, his public falling on his face, even Peter is not beyond redemption. None of you have done anything close To what Peter did. And I know what many of you have done. Because you've told me. Because I'm a priest. Because I listen to confession. You're not written off. Who wouldn't want the story to be true? Who wouldn't want justice. And grace to kiss. Can't you feel it in your gut? Would have been so grateful for such a generous and kind and long suffering God. Isn't it beautiful? Here is the story of a generously, stunningly generous God. This God who is the source of all delight, all that is lovely and lively. This God who is filled utterly with love, just love that you can't imagine, grace to the core of his being. Isn't that alluring? So here we're seeing how the account of Jesus' resurrection in Mark chapter 16, we're seeing how it portrays the real difficulty of faith. Solved by beauty, not logic. Solved by seduction, by allurement. Solved by loveliness. Here we see belief crashing into beauty. But I can't stop there. You you see, I'm I'm trying to court you. I'm trying to allure you into the faith. So one more detail. And as Alan Payton starts off my favorite novel, Cry the Beloved Country, here is something whose beauty is beyond the singing of it. Look at verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they, the three women, went to the tomb. Mark is very particular about the time. Three phrases, bam, 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 right in a row. Early morning, very early. First day of the week, when the sun rises. You know, in, in my Bible, the gospel of Mark is 30 pages a 30 page biography of, of arguably the most seminal figure in world history many people would say I would say definitely I've never read a, read a 30 page biography of any founding father of America 30 pages get it all in there Mark three phrases you know how much he had to leave out to bring those three phrases in It's like a sandwich. The time of the day is the bread. Very early when the sun had risen. And in the middle, the meat, Sunday, the first day of the week. That phrase, the first day of the week, it's really important. It's in all the gospels. Apparently, every time the story was told, it had become like a um, rote phrase. But it's what Mark does with the time of the day, not the day of the week. The time of the day that I want to draw attention to because it's confusing. At first it appears clumsy. You see the initial phrase very early in that culture. This is a technical phrase. It means the part of the morning prior to sunrise. We've got technical phrases for time of day. Dawn, dusk, noonday. Twilight. We've got lots of phrases that give you the, the the season of the day we're in. Very early was their phrase for the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. time, the first part of that. The time prior to sunrise. But then the end of the phrase, the end of the sentence, the end of verse 2 says, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. So which is it? Eh. Is it according to all the skeptics of the New Testament? Is this confusion? Did Mark, this brilliant literary artist, suddenly slip into ignorance and not know that he was contradicting himself? If you've been with us over the course of our Holy Week services, you might remember that when Jesus was crucified, this is back in chapter 15, verse 33, it was in the middle of the day. And what happened to the sun? For three hours, it went dark. Darkness on the land in three hours, for three hours, starting at noon. Do you see what Mark is doing? Do you see what he's telling us? He's telling us that the same sun that in the crucifixion fled the day before it was night, now in the resurrection, this same sun shows up ahead of time in the night to put the night to flight. The sun, in order to die with its creator, had put to death its own midday brightness. And in order to rise with its creator, it vanquished the darkness and burst forth before the dawn. Isn't that beautiful? And I'm not just talking about its literary quality, which is exquisite. Ranks up there. I'm talking about the overwhelming claim that is being made. I'm talking about the astonishing, mind boggling, imagination stretching claim that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply about the fact that Jesus is alive, therefore, my sins are forgiven. Now, that is true, and it's central, and it is massively important. At least to me. Not as much to Zelda. She hasn't sinned as much. Actually, it's a joke. That's <laughs> what makes it funny. <laughs> I'm joking, Zelda. Massively important, but by no means the whole truth. And the resurrection isn't simply about a new spirituality. Jesus is alive, therefore, we get to know him, we get to have a relationship with him. Very true, fundamentally true, massively important. But that's not the heart of Easter. Forgiveness of sins, very important, not the heart of Easter. Relationship with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, very important, not the heart of Easter. Not the big truth, not the total truth. It's a, it's a part of it. It fits within it. The whole truth is this. Because Jesus is alive, because he was raised, a whole new world, a new creation has come into being. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, on page after page after page, we have the promise of God that he will not abandon this world. He will rescue it. He will establish his good and gracious kingdom. And over and over, the last words on David's mouth, the greatest king of Israel, in the prophet Malachi's mouth, Over and over and page after page, when it talks about the great work that God will do, it includes a line about the rising of the sun. Now, I'm not saying this is a beautiful literary technique. I'm saying that if an author is the Lord of his story and can foreshadow, God is the Lord of history and can use events to foreshadow events. All over the Bible it says that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's why the art is on the front of the worship guide. They didn't even know. They didn't even know. In Jesus' death and resurrection... It's happened. The good news is that the one true God has taken hold of this world in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. He, it really did happen. God's new creation really did begin. And forgiveness of sins, a huge important part of that. Forgiveness of sins, as important to the healing of your relationship to God as it is to your relationship with anybody that you've sinned against. Fundamentally important. God's new creation really did begin when Jesus rose from the dead. So when we pray for God's Holy Spirit to breathe in and through our lives, it is so that new life, real and lasting new life, will spring up in the world. The good news is true. Something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. And if we're following Jesus, praying for his spirit to guide and empower us, we are a part of the new creation. We can be resurrection people. People who are being renewed by the good news. People through whom the good news is bringing healing and hope into our lives and through us into this world. At every level we engage with. Family. School job and we do this we bring new creation into this world we do this against the day when one day the renewal of all things will take place and we will share with him in our own resurrection and what an incredible story imagination stretching pretend I've just told you a fairy tale now ask the question what if it is true Julian Barnes, the the author I quoted earlier, he said the Christian religion didn't last so long merely because everyone believed it. It lasted so long because it was so beautiful. Something I think we've forgotten in the age of rationalism. So going back to where we started, are you the kind of person for whom believing doesn't come easy do you feel the suffocating imminence that characterizes late modern existence? Do you live under a brass heaven? Are you haunted by doubt? Doubt that Jesus' life and death and resurrection opened the door to new creation? Doubt that if there is that kind of God, he could even love you? Doubt that if there is a God, he actually gives attention to us individually? Julian Barnes, the British atheist, in the same book. I've already quoted the first line of his book. It's a memoir of reflections on death. First line of the book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Do you want to believe? Like Julian, do you have a longing for God? If you do, don't think that doubt is the opposite of faith. It's not. If it is, every married relationship in this room is doomed. Faith and doubt coexist. The most important things we know, we can't prove. The only things that we can prove with absolute certainty are the things that don't really matter. One plus one is two. That's not going to change your life. All of the things that matter. We use a different epistemology. A different path to knowledge. Than doubt seeking certainty. Then we see we've grown up after Descartes. Descartes said you doubt it. And whatever's left. That's trustworthy. And because of that. People who buy into that. Can never have successful intimate relationships. You will destroy those around you if you lead with cynicism and skepticism and doubt. Do you want to believe? If you do, don't think of doubt as the opposite of faith. Doubt and faith can coexist, so take the risk. Give God a chance. The American author, Sheldon Vonneken, he wrote a book about his own struggle through the wilderness of doubt. A Severe Mercy is the name of the book. Here's how he put his struggle with this issue. If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. My God, perhaps to leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble. But what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there is no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. I flung myself over the gap. Towards Jesus. What about you? What about you? Like those frightened women. On that first day. We have to learn. To not be afraid. Just because we don't. No, where God is leading us doesn't mean that the new world hasn't begun. No, with Easter, it has begun. Let's pray.